first of all, what is stress? It, it gives off in our culture a kind of, uh, we know it's not necessarily a good thing, but generally people don't really understand what it is, how it works, when it's uh, deleterious for our ongoing mental and physical health. So in a situation where we are faced with some kind of threat or opportunity, there's a bunch of glands throughout the body, uh, in the, especially the body, the uh, adrenal gland, and uh, up in the brain, the HPA axis, hypothalamus, pituitary, uh, adrenal uh, axis. And um, so what is released is first adrenaline in the body and cortisol and uh, glucose is released to give your body a charge and your blood pumps more efficiently, your heart pumps faster, the blood vessels constrict and while you have a stress response you are in essence um, your body pretty much stops digestion and it stops producing white blood cells. This is because uh, in terms of our evolutionary history, to be faced with a threat would mean that um, there would be no real reason to produce at that time white blood cells, which are to fight long-term infections or to digest food if we were faced with something that was uh, life-threatening uh, or dangerous it was in our best interest to produce red blood cells which repair tissue damage and to, instead of sending blood to and serotonin to run digestion, all the resources were sent to the muscles. So, there's nothing wrong with stress per se. When I rode my bike here from Williamsburg, I probably engaged it uh, numerous times, anytime there was suddenly a sound behind me or a car or suddenly I had to navigate, all of those systems, uh, hopefully, well, no doubt they did work, which is why I'm here with you. And there's nothing wrong with short-term uh, stress. However, unlike the situation in life where we do want to have a stress response, for instance, suppose you're walking in the woods you hear the sound of what might be a bear, and you have that startle reflex, all of which is triggered by the stress response, the HPA axis and the adrenal gland. In our modern life, let's face it, we're not faced with that many bears anymore. We have, in fact, become the dominant species, and so we are no longer running from bears, from wild boars, elephants very often. Uh, the stress response that human beings now face is from the entire second group of stressors. Uh, species not only feel or trigger stress from threats to survival, but also there's such a thing as social stress, which is essentially the fear of doing something or acting in a way that will lead to our social uh, isolation, ostracization, uh, being cast out from our friendships, 
from the people that support us. So the problem with social stress is that unlike the primary cause of stress, which is a threat, which you can run away from and then you de-trigger the stress response, in human uh, society today, we wind up in workplaces, social arrangements, situations in life, which trigger the stress response in an ongoing way, which causes what's known as chronic stress. Now, when you chronically trigger stress, whether, uh, and there's some, you know, primary causes we'll go into, when you continually trigger stress, uh, eventually the adrenaline burns out, the glucose, your, bl your blood sugar level goes down, but the cortisol keeps on replenishing in the brain, and cortisol is the one that leads to heart disease, diabetes, systemic inflammation, Alzheimer's, cancer, panic attacks, depression, and anxiety. So cortisol that is chronically released is not necessarily uh, in any way healthy. So what are the non or the, the causes of chronic stress that we can do something about? The things we can't do anything about are, of course, downturns in the economy that make it difficult to find any kind of job security, and of course, genetic stress. There was a study of 800 twins, some of which were uh, identical, and some of which were fraternal, and some of which just were two kids, one of which was adopted, raised in the same family. And from that test, they managed to show that roughly 50% of stress levels are directly correlated to our genetics. In other words, you can't do anything about it. You're stuck with that level of stress. So, but there are stress uh, triggers that can certainly produce serious health and mental problems. The primary group can be broken down into habitual worrying, resentments, blame. Essentially, the strategies that we use to live up in our heads and not feel uh, difficult emotional somatic experiences. The second, of course, are um, lack of secure social connection. Human beings are limbically regulated through our connection with other people, and if we don't have secure uh, relationships, if attachment figures die, if we lose connection, important connections in our life, we lose the ability to regulate the amygdala and we wind up in hypervigilant states. We literally are a species that cannot, in isolation, completely calm ourselves down. We need, in addition to, no matter how much you meditate, and I like to think that I do it quite a bit, but all the meditation in the world, if you don't have secure relationships where you disclose your emotional activations, i.e. you talk about your feelings, you signal your feelings, you get honest, you won't achieve uh, regulated 
stress. And then there's also studies show that feeling a lack of, if you're standing in the back, by the way, there's, uh, there's cushions in the front. Uh, so there's also what it, it turns out a lot of research now shows that people who don't feel a higher purpose in their life are also susceptible to stress, feeling that one's day-to-day -day activities in some way benefit the greater good. All of that actually is a direct uh, regulator of right hemispheric stress. So let's take them one by one. Worrying is a way to not feel anxiety. We worry because it gives us the idea that we are somehow taking action by worrying. But even more importantly, worry, which is an entirely cognitive process where we visualize or think about unlikely what-if scenarios and catastrophes, it completely exists largely in cognitive language and visual creations. It's essentially pulling the attention into the left hemisphere. But what predates that? People worry because they feel anxious. Anxiousness is not a thought. Anxiousness is a somatic experience triggered by the right hemisphere and felt in different places in the front of the body, very often in tightness in the chest, tightness in the belly, uh, tightness in the throat, <coughs> feelings of stress in the shoulders, etc. So what happens is we train ourselves unconsciously when, the, when we start to feel anxiety due to felt vulnerability socially, worries about how we're perceived by other people, fears about uh, unresolved issues in life, fears about important attachments. We start to feel anxious, and then the thinking left hemisphere goes, oh no, I don't want to feel any of that stuff, that's for sure. Let me handle this. I'll do something that I like to do more, which is worry. <laughs> worry, obviously, is a natural replacement for anxiety. And yet, at the same time, uh, it actually has far more deleterious effects than, and I've used that word twice, so please stop me if I use deleterious <laughs> again. I don't know where that came from. Uh, obviously, I don't want to have to say negative. It has uh, negative effects. Uh, there was a study by, who are these people? Zeb and Beck in 1998 in a journal called Behavioral Modification that showed that worry is far more harmful than anxiety that's felt. What it does is not only discharge cortisol for far longer, while you're worrying, you're constantly triggering cortisol. While you feel your anxiety, actually you're processing and actually ending the release of cortisol. But while you think about bad possibilities in the future, you are continuing the discharge of cortisol, which is depleting your body of white blood cells, which is actually causing uh, cell death in the telomeres, which is actually attacking your hippocampus, 
by which is uh, actually one of the primary causes of Alzheimer's disease. So, you don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, it also, in addition to all that, if that wasn't bad enough, they compared people who sat and were aware of their anxiety versus people who worry a lot and are not somatically aware, and they found out that people who worry more actually wind up with reduced problem-solving capabilities. So all the thinking about a problem and, and catastrophizing doesn't actually mean we solve problems better in our life. It actually means we solve them worse. This is why Einstein said the most important thing to do when faced with a problem is put it down to take his famous walks on the beach. When we release cortisol, what happens is a part of the brain called the striatum keeps signaling the same thoughts over and over and over again. Have you ever noticed what happens when you lose your keys right before you need to leave the house? No, that never happens to anybody, right? So you lose your keys or your wallet or your phone right before you need to leave the house. Your brain triggers, oh my God, I'm late, such and such is going to happen, that's the worry faculty, I might lose my job, my friends will be angry, worry, 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 triggers three Adam, look for the keys in the same place over and over again. It's not on my desk, it should be on my desk, who moved my keys? That's why we lose our problem-solving capabilities because one, we are in the same place and we're releasing cortisol, the striatum signals the exact same thing to do over and over again. We get stuck in behavioral loops. On the other hand, if you want to think outside of the box, the first thing to do is take what is called uh, by Tara Brach a spiritual pause. Step up, step away from the laptop, <laughs> step away from the email, Back away from the text, put the phone down, breathe, turn around, look into the distance, take in new information, stopping the release of cortisol, switching off the striatum, opening up the possibilities of not writing back a nasty text or email or getting caught in the natural responses. So. A lot of clinical psychologists, cognitive behavioral therapists recommend uh, what's called skillful worrying, which I think is a terrific idea and have done in my life and can highly recommend it, which is if we try to not worry, it will not work. It doesn't work because you've already, by this point in your life, uh, already trained your brain to send up worrying thoughts and it will not simply stop sending them up because you say no. But on the other hand, if you indulge worrying thoughts by adding to them, focusing on them and filling them out, fleshing them out with catastrophizing, uh, you know, imaginations, that doesn't work either. That continually releases cortisol and re-triggers the stress response. So. There are two strategies that work really well when it comes to chronic worrying. The first is to set up worrying times where for 15 or 20 minutes a day you give yourself permission to worry as much as you want 
and you write down in a journal or type out all of the worries without any editing, judgment, criticism, just write them out without stopping them. Now, this works because having an outlet create reduces the insistence that worrying thoughts arise to the frontal lobe with. When we try to fully repress worrying thoughts, what happens is it creates what Dan Wegner of Harvard called cognitive overload. We have the thought, oh my God, what if I lose my job? What's going to happen to me in 30 years? Financial insecurity, 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 and then there's the, oh no, I don't want to think about this thought. Make this thought go away. And then there's the rest of the mind which wants to think about something else. So that's cognitive overload. Too many things to try to keep track of. On the other hand, what we can do is simply first allow this thought to arise, give it a little bit of time, not before bed. Don't do your worrying time before bed. Don't do it first thing in the morning. The optimum time I found to do worry was around lunch, right, be right before I ate, because the flush of dopamine after my worry time uh, allowed me to get out of the, you know, the bad mood. But right before lunch, give yourself permission to catastrophize as much as you want, and then the rest of the day becomes what's called a worry-free zone, where whenever a worrying thought comes up, you write it down, and you make an appointment with it tomorrow before lunch <laughs> for it to tell you every terrible thing about you and how your life is not going to amount to anything and you should have majored in something else in college. <laughs> so, of course, another strategy that we'll use in tonight's meditation is to learn how to greet, say yes to worry without turning it into a fully-fleshed uh, catastrophe. What that means is when a worrying thought arises, allow it to be there and simply be able to maintain some sensation in the present moment that will pull you out of the thought and make it impossible for you to flesh the worry out into a fully-fledged you know, disastrous future waiting for you down the line. So the thought comes up, what happens if I lose my job? You say, hello, there you are again. I knew you were going to come up. <laughs> Nobody likes me. Okay, hi, there you are. <laughs> my friends don't really care for me. Hi, it's nice to see you. You want to hear more? No, I'm going to stay here with my breath, but you're allowed to be there. But I've got important things to tell you. I don't know why I'm doing this. You get the idea. So, but anyway, that's the, that's the goal, to not push it away, to not indulge it, to keep awareness grounded in a present time sensation. Now, some cognitive behavioral therapists recommend actually skillful thinking when that arises and you see the nature of the catastrophe, think about what you could do right now in the present moment to address and make that fear a little less overwhelming. So you could, instead of keeping the breath in mind or uh, being aware of the body, feeling your anxiety that's beneath the worry, you could instead say, oh, 
I'm worried about what happens if I lose my job. Okay, I'll strategize about how to not spend as much money so that I can save money, so that I'll feel less vulnerable if I do lose my job. I don't like that, personally. I don't like the idea of going on a budget. <laughs> I'm already living hand to mouth. But also, I just think it's more fun to just have a, instilled a practice where I can just breathe or feel the underlying anxiety. Now, another way that we distract from the felt feelings in the body and pull awareness into the left hemisphere is blame. Blame, just as worry masks anxiety, blame masks frustration and anger at important people or relationships in our life. Nobody likes to actually really feel anger. People say they like to feel angry, and we even believe we know angry people, but generally what we know is people who have a lot of resentments and who occasionally explode in rage, but generally the people who struggle with anger actually tend to live in the story rather than simply sit and feel the disappointment that arises when a relationship or interpersonal experience goes awry. So what people tend to do, though, when they feel put upon at work, they feel that other people aren't taking care of them, when they feel that co-workers are uh, in some way not chipping in and putting more of a workload on their shoulders, they tend to resolve or resort to blame. Blame, just like worry, feels good because it masks the underlying emotional somatic content in the body. Winnicott, the great child psychologist, said that we learn very young in life that we feel safer in our thoughts, which he calls the false self, rather than in the felt body, because the felt body reminds us of being a child where we have no control, whether our thoughts, on the other hand, remind us of fantasies that we can escape into. So we feel vulnerable in our bodies. We somehow feel safer in the blame, worry, uh, and in fact studies show that actually there are trace amounts of dopamine which feel good while people blame and worry. But at the same time, it's also releasing far greater amounts of cortisol. Blame, according to the psychologist Dotman, is the single most corrosive factor that undermines core relationships that allow us to reduce stress in our life. Blame is the single cause of relational breakdown. So while we choose to, instead of feeling our anger, then expressing it skillfully, I feel disappointed in this situation, we tend to resort to blame or resentment, which is live in the story of how other people are disappointing or other people are wrong or bad. Now, if we take action directly from are somehow blame, we could argue for it, but in my experience, when people get stuck in resentments and blame processes, they don't actually act on resolving or addressing conflicts. They avoid conflicts. Blame is a substitute of working through conflicts. When we learn how to process our anger, feel it, hold it, be with it, and then we bring it to someone 
and we say, I feel really disappointed. Perhaps in our lives we've experienced times where we've tried to work through conflicts where we feel disappointed and we struggle. Generally, in my experience, that's because we bring our emotional state to the person that we feel is somehow responsible, and we tend to say, you made me feel this way. You're responsible. You caused this. Which generally then, of course, triggers defensiveness and creates even greater conflict. On the other hand, simply stating, right now I'm feeling unsupported. Right now I'm feeling disappointed. Right now I'm feeling unseen. And addressing it, and, if, and, and say, in this situation, in the way we're working, in the way we're living, in the way we are cohabitating, in the way we are roommates together, I feel like there's an unequal amount of burden placed on my shoulders. Without putting the you in it, simply owning the way we're feeling and presenting that actually is what Gottman says, the foundations of the way we work through conflict with other people. We like to believe that by adding the you, we'll somehow make it clear or we can change other people's behavior. But in fact, the moment we target someone and we say, my feelings are caused by you, actually what happens is simply people become defensive, which is the second most corrosive thing that destroys relationships. So learning how to work through frustration and anger by feeling it and then bringing it and expressing it skillfully as opposed to living in resentment, and two, learning how to worry skillfully by rather than living in catastrophes, setting up worry times, and learning how to feel anxiety without fearing it is the two most important strategies to reducing stress in terms of the way we use our minds. It was an interesting and almost funny um, study. I think I'm the only one who finds these studies funny. Yes, here it is. I have to read the names of these researchers because I like their names. Abiola Keller, that's a made-up name, right? Deborah Litzelman and Lauren Wisk in 1998 Health Review and uh, re reviewed um, over 2,000 um, deaths that happened over a course of eight years. And what they found was that in this test they described um, the experience of anxiety and stress, what it feels like to people. And they didn't say stress, they simply described it. And then they followed up by noting that the people who believed that feeling their anxiety and their stress and their physical, you know, sensations were bad had a 200 to 500% greater risk of health issues and their chance of death was 43% higher than the people who had no issue with the description of the way panic and anxiety felt in the body. So if people said, oh, that's bad, I don't want to feel that, when anxiety was described, they wound up having an increased risk of death by 43%, and they figured that over the course of the six-year study, 180,000 people died 
simply because they believed that feeling negative affects in their body was a bad idea. In other words, people die because they think they're safer in their heads than feeling their feelings in the body. I can't put it any simpler than that. <laughs> you want to develop embodied awareness if you want to be healthy. Um, thanks, Abiola. Uh, so that's, um, that's the first, which is all of the, the first half boils down to developing embodied awareness, not resorting to worry and blame as ways to not feel anxiety and anger, learning how to feel them in the body, process them through mindfulness, express or work through. Now, the second step is very much addressing our social attachments and connections. There was an interesting study by the Journal of Social and Personality Psychology in 2011, and they found that people with supportive close relationships have far lower levels of systemic isolation and cancer than people who have poor social relationships. Women neurally release oxytocin when they feel stress. Oxytocin is a neurotransmitter that promotes bonding. So women actually feel or experience a far greater impetus to connect and seek support when they feel stressed than men, who, guess what, release barely trace amounts of oxytocin when they feel stressed. So we are primed by nature to act unilaterally without seeking any help or support. And that is why men traditionally have far higher incidence of cardiovascular disease, because we are primed to not seek help. If there's any area that's bad news for women in this, it's that they tend to be culturally primed to seek consensus. And so when a woman is feeling the desire to act against the advice or beliefs of her peers, she might struggle in that way. Men, on the other hand, have no problem doing stuff that their peers disapprove of because they don't even bother to seek support when they feel stressed out. So obviously... The most important thing to do when we begin to notice the signs of panic or anxiety or fear or catastrophizing thoughts is to pick up the phone, which is what people used to do back before your generation or <laughs> before this generation, and actually call up somebody and say, boy, I'm really stressed out or I'm frightened or I feel overwhelmed or I feel scared or lonely or bored, or to seek out people through direct one-to-one -one connection. Facebook, alas, and texting doesn't work because emotion regulation requires attunement, which means either hearing or seeing somebody directly emotionally respond to us in the present moment. Sending off a text or posting actually in no way regulates the uh, amygdala response. So even though we would like to believe that sending out a post about how stressed out we are or how sad or lonely we are, it actually has absolutely no benefits psychologically. It doesn't. It's been tested. So I can already anticipate the questions, but 
I feel better when I post. It makes me feel better. What it does is it releases dopamine, which gives you a short-term burst that masks the fact that you still feel lonely, bored, sad, or anxious. And then the dopamine wears off, and then what we have to do is shop, or eat food, or post again, or do something else that releases dopamine. It in no way addresses the negative affect. The only way to address the negative affect is either to feel it in your meditation, or to talk about it with a friend. So, another role about the human connection is volunteerism. Volunteerism, death records show that mortality increases 30% after each major trauma and loss in life. So you lose somebody that's important, or your house burns down, or you go bankrupt, or you get divorced your chances of dying in the next year go up by 30%, except if you do volunteer work. <laughs> they should I don't know why they don't use this in their volunteer, you know, they, they put it in. <laughs> yeah. No, you will die unless you do this. You will die. You say that and people go, oh my God. So I actually, I, I have, I've known about this for a while, and I started volunteering uh, <laughs> years and years ago. Actually, I started back in the 80s with this organization, God's Love We Deliver, and uh, through another organization. And I've been doing it since, and I think that uh, even though I haven't really, um, only, I've only had a few traumas in that period of time, I like to think it really does help with resilience. So... Finally, before we have our actual meditation, uh, letting go of responsibility at work has been found to be a key stress-reducing strategy. People tend to, it seems, take far more uh, or give far more attention to whether their co-workers are living up to their responsibilities or um, uh, information outside of their direct control. And people will come up with all kinds of justifications why they're worrying about stuff that has nothing to do with the parameters of what they need to do in any given day. But as a strategy for mental health, it's really a great idea to not focus on unresolved dramas that have nothing to do with us, unless it's directly with somebody that we care and love and we want to help. Finally, the Buddha really emphasized right livelihood. As I said at the beginning, there are people who do have, by genetic disposition, a high uh, trigger reactions to low stressors. And it's important for us all, if we do notice that we are constantly feeling anxious, constantly battling uh, catastrophizing thoughts, constantly feeling disempowered in our workplaces, constantly feeling unheard. It is important in life to prioritize our emotional and physical health over our achievement goals. While careers 
goals and finances which appeal to the left hemisphere will always be the most appealing option to consciousness because we live in the left hemisphere and we don't like to pay attention to our bodies and we don't like to pay attention to our emotional health which are of the right hemisphere and the elements that live somehow often entirely beneath our awareness. It's important to listen to the messages that our mind, our emotions, our bodies are sending us. If our anxiety that we're feeling in our chest and our stomach is constant and no matter how much we talk or process or feel it, it keeps on rising, it's a message that we are not feeling safe and that we have to reprioritize. The Buddha didn't limit right livelihood to simply work that didn't cause harm. He said work that led enough quality time to connect with our families and the people we love is also key to right livelihood. In our culture, where we have diminishing social safety nets, where we face mounting stressors financially, it can seem uh, easy to say that we should prioritize our emotional and physical health, but as somebody who is a Buddhist teacher, it's my job to say that. So, that's tonight's talk. Now let's do some stress reduction. So, just finding balance. It's not important for you to sit in any rock-style position and choose a position that doesn't cause pain. So if you know for a fact that a meditation position in the past has caused pain, don't sit that way. If you want, don't cross your legs. Just lean against the wall. There's wall space. Just find a comfortable position and try to balance your head over your shoulders and your shoulders over your hips. It's actually easier to sustain a meditation if you've got your body just generally aligned so that your head is not drifting in front of the shoulders. That causes strain in the neck and it also promotes drifting off. So closing the eyes or look, lowering your gaze down to something that's motionless and let's start bringing our awareness from its fixation with thoughts into the body. The way we do this first is just we'll start with three breaths. Just take that long inhalation through the nose, lifting the shoulders up, trying to touch your ears with them if you like, and then holding it. And then when you breathe out, lowering the shoulders down, dropping them. And if you feel, if it feels appropriate, pulling the shoulders back so that we open up the chest and then the next in breath pulling the belly taut so you feel the belly energized really tight and then breathe out and soften the belly really round Buddha belly a nobody's looking at us type of belly the kind of belly that goes against the programming we received and then finally, the last 
or the third breath in the sequence, tightening the buttocks, fists, tightening toes, muscles in the legs, arms, face, holding, and then long, smooth out-breath, relaxing the body. So immediately we're assigning or relating, associating the in-breath with aliveness and energy and the out-breath with ease. So we're going to be using the out-breath a bit more in this meditation whenever you feel any raising level of anxiety. Focus first on extending the length of the out-breath and making it as smooth as possible. That actually engages the parasympathetic nervous system and the vagal vagus nerve and tells your thinking mind to be quiet. So making any adjustments, and for this meditation it's really in no way important for you to uh, work with pain. So if you feel any pain, feel free to adjust your position. All I ask is that you fixate on how can you adjust your position without distracting your neighbor with sounds. So try to find a position that feels good. And then bringing awareness for our first stress reduction strategy, just bringing awareness into the breathing body, feeling the breath in the body, knowing when you're breathing in, knowing when you're breathing out. For this meditation, I really like using the belly, the abdomen, as the area of the body I focus on. Of course, you can use any area. I like it because breathing in the chest is actually associated with feelings of busyness, rush, adrenaline, pumping, heart racing. When we're very calm, we tend to actually move the sensations from the chest that are most apparent down to the belly. So see if you can cultivate the breath, like feeling like your belly is pulling in the breath, and then the sensation of breathing out is released, not pushed out by the belly, just released. Now for developing states of ease and calm, the goal is to make the out-breath at least twice as long as the in-breath. So one strategy is to simply count one, two, three, etc. on the in-breath, and then whatever number you reach, try to double it on the out-breath. So there might be a pause, and then one, two, three, four, five, six. To make this possible, try to make the out-breath <coughs> not pushed in any way, just a thin stream of air.
See if you can extend the sensations now beyond the belly so that you feel the in-breath as a wave of energy moving up from the belly into the chest and then the long exhalation, a gentle wave receding from the shore back from the chest down all the way past the belly down into the legs. So using the breath to calm now any anxiety in the chest by using the rhythm of the breath to release, soften. bringing up an image of a place that you feel safe or a person that you associate with love and care. Holding that image in your mind, either that place or that person, and then try to gently, starting with the top of the head, Recreate what you feel like in the body when you're with that person or at that place. So, for instance, if you love the beach in the summer, holding an image of lying on a blanket in the sand, the sun blazing above, and then feel the sensations of ease in the head as you relax into the sand, the feelings of calm, a mind that's left all the unresolved issues back in the city, a body receiving the warmth around it without any resistance. You don't need to be at the beach to recreate in the body and emotional mind the feeling of safety.
just allowing the sensations that are occurring in the world around us to be there. This is simply adding the feelings, returning the body to a state of safety. You are, in fact, safe right now. It's only the mind that believes otherwise. So holding the image of the place you feel safe, the person that you associate with care, and just constantly relaxing the body into what it feels like when you're with that person or at that place. And now for our third approach, let go of the place and bring into your mind an image of yourself at a time in your life when you really deserved love, care, kindness. Whatever age holding that image of yourself without turning it into a movie in your mind, just holding an image like a photograph of yourself when you deserve love, whatever age, and then addressing you, that image, I care about you. I'll take care of you. I care about your happiness. I'll take care of you. I won't leave you in vulnerable situations. Your happiness matters to me. Your happiness matters to me. I care about you. I'll take care of you.
and now gradually replacing the older image, if it's an older image, with an image of yourself the way you might look today, the way you appear in your mind today, knowing that that younger version of yourself that deserved love is still emotionally with you today. That today you need care and kindness and love and attention every bit as much as you needed it then. So shortly I'm going to ring the bowl, and I'd like you to encourage you to, rather than simply open your eyes when you hear the sound, but to really practice, when you hear the sound, taking the entire length of the sound to slowly open up your eyes, as sight is such a rich visual field of information, if we simply open our eyes and look around, there's so much information flooding into the mind that we will naturally discharge awareness of our bodies, our feelings, and we'll go back into the externally fixated, thought-based, cognitive lifestyles without any awareness of feeling states. So when you hear the sound, just try to keep in your awareness how does your body feel? How does your breath feel? Living not just up in your head, but integrating all the messages your body is sending you into your awareness. 